you would, grab your Bibles and turn over to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, and we, uh, we did some clean out yesterday, Brother Don and I and his nephews, and I'm a little, uh, a little nasally, it was a lot of dust and debris in that garage, uh, Pastor sees squirreled away for however many years <laughs> into that garage and we were emptying it yesterday. So don't mind me, I am not, I do not feel sick, I do not have a temperature, I do not have anything, but boy oh boy that was a lot of dust yesterday and I think it's just kind of clogging me up, you know how it is, and uh, it's very old and very terrible dust, Brother Don is feeling the same way. So uh, we, were, we were in it uh, yesterday, but uh, Matthew chapter 28 and uh, I want to read here, and I want to read over in Colossians chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to grab that spot as well, but Colossians chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 28. Uh, as you well know, next week is our missions conference, and uh, we're ultimately going to decide what, you know, individually we'll decide what we do. Uh, for missions and what we're going to give this year and uh, we don't preach a lot on giving here I don't like preaching on giving most of you give and you do very well and uh, we don't really we don't really have to preach on it uh, you you want to give you want to help out what the Lord's doing and uh, missions is a great opportunity for us to reach a world uh, with the gospel and give to others to be able to go and uh, this morning we're going to read uh, a very familiar spot in Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 18 he says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And here we have, uh, of course, what we call the Great Commission. It's commonly the Great Commission. And here it is. And he gives out the order here to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, if you were to think about the world now, uh, according to the United Nations, so I got to go by. So statistics are fun, right? You want to look up, you know, world statistics and all these things. All the numbers are going to be different. So I'll give you where I got it, and we'll go from there, all right? Uh, and we'll hope they're as close as we can get, okay? Uh, so according to the United Nations, there's 195 nations in the world. Now, some people go to 197. Some people have 203. Some people have, you know, whatever, all right? Uh, the 193 nations that comprise the United Nations uh, and our members... And then you have two more, which are very interesting to me, right? Uh, the other two non-members and are just observers to the United Nations are Palestine and Vatican City. Because Vatican City is a sovereign nation. It's not part of Rome. Anyways, I won't get into that. 195 countries in the world, according to, according to the United Nations. Our world population is now somewhere around the neighborhood of 8.05 billion people, closing in on 8.1 billion on the planet right now. Uh, of those nations, 
uh, you find uh, that uh, we have a wonderful thing that we call the 1040 window. That's kind of the way that they go. Uh, the 1040 window, if you do not know what that is, and many people don't, uh, is the area on the earth between 10 degrees north latitude and 40 degrees north latitude. Uh, it contains two-thirds of the world's population. So two-thirds of the eight, million, or eight billion people on the planet live in that portion of the earth. All right? Out of that, there's about 70 nations. Those numbers also vary. It's between 68 and 70 nations are within there. Of those nations, you find very quickly that most of them are nations that have virtually no Christian witness whatsoever. Virtually none. Uh, you look at a world today of 8 billion plus, and as you look over the current stats of 2023, the deaths that happen per year right now are around 166,324 people will die today. Let me say that again. 166,000 people will die today. 6,930 per hour. 116 people will die each minute. And nearly two people will die every second on the planet somewhere. So while we have church today, Sunday school plus the morning service, two and a half hours roughly from 9.30 to noon, 17,325 people will have died. If that's not sobering, I don't know what is. 17,000 people plus, while you and I have sat at church, have stepped off into eternity and brought us the way that leadeth to destruction. So the vast majority of that 17,000 will have stepped off into a lake of fire for all of eternity. Where the vast majority of the population has no real gospel witness. In 2005, a group called Reaching Beyond Borders did a study. Uh, they came up with 29,000 evangelical missionaries. Now that doesn't necessarily have just us, right? <laughs> That's only 29,000 in the world. That sounds crazy low to me. So maybe it's completely wrong. I don't know. They estimated that only five to 6,000 of those were independent Baptists like us. That's it. Five to 6,000. If all of them are preaching the gospel, you've got 29,000. That was it. To a world of 8 billion. I mean, if you crank back maybe 2007, you were somewhere around, what, six and a half, seven billion, somewhere in there, right, back in 2005? But still, 29,000. It is said that of those 29,000, 30% of them, 30% are in Brazil, Mexico, the United Kingdom, the Philippines, and Canada. Those five countries, 30%. That's where they go. Most missionaries go Oftentimes, and I'm not saying this is terrible of them, most missionaries end up in a place that is very easy for them to get to and easy for them to go, and they have other people who are already working there. 
most people, 42%, or I'm sorry, 75%. In 2001, the survey was 75% of those people who profess to be full-time Christian workers. So that's pastors, evangelists, missionary, everybody who's full-time and their salary is based upon the work that they do for the church. Now this is broad spectrum, right? This is everybody. This isn't just me and people like me. This is, you know, uh, you know, a Catholic priest, a Mormon, whatever, you know, all these guys, all these people. But it's estimated 75% of them all work in Christian circles. They're in a Christian-friendly area, meaning there is no persecution, there is no, there's nothing against them. They can do whatever they want to. That would be here in America, right? We pretty much can do what we want to as Christians. 75%. That leaves 25%. Now, granted, they estimated approximately 5 million work, 5, I better look back at this. If I don't, I'll lose it. Uh, I didn't write it down right there. Uh, I think it is. I think it is five hundred, uh, or yeah, f- something like that. Five hundred thousand workers, and four hundred thousand plus are just sitting right here in the United States or in a country like ours. Vast majority do not go anywhere where they would face any real persecution. You look over the world, you know what you find? You find that one-third of our missionaries that go out last less than 10 years on the field. A large number come off the field before five years. The way the numbers balance out is they average 12. They average 12. But that's because you have people like some of our missionaries who have been missionaries for the last 40 years. How do you get people that go 40 years, but you balance them all the way down to 12? Well, you got a whole bunch of people who don't last 10. One third of the missionaries do not last 10 years. 42% of the 1040 window, 42% of the two thirds of our population has no missionaries going to it. None. So why do you say all that? Because the command was to go. I'm, we can read it again. Do we need to read it again? And the task that you and I have is impossible. You realize you and I have an impossible task as Christians? How are you supposed to get the gospel to everybody? You think about this. How do you how do you get a witness to eight billion people? Most of which, you know, pretty much eight point five billion people, right? Or eight point one billion people. I'm sorry, eight point one billion people. How do you get the gospel to eight point one billion people? You don't even know the point one billion people. In case you're curious, your Facebook page is not doing it. Your Twitter and your Instagram and your whatever, that's not doing it. Your YouTube channel is not good enough. That is not how God was doing it. You realize the world is set up for you and I to be able to do and accomplish. Does God ever give us the task we cannot complete? 
He gives you the task he wants completed. We look and we go, well, this is an impossible task. How could God ask this? Because we forget verse number, 20, uh, verse number 18 here of chapter 28. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. <laughs> well, why do I go? Because he has all the power so that I can go. You realize, I don't think God has suddenly turned the spigot off on calling people to the mission field. I don't think God stopped calling guys to preach, and I don't think God stopped doing this. And God is still calling and still moving. You say, how do you know that? Because the trumpet hasn't sounded. We're not done. Say, so, well, what's changed? People have changed. They have decided they do not want to do what he asked them to do because they are afraid of having the power of God upon them. But the truth is, the power of God is the only way that you and I will accomplish whatever we accomplish for Him. Look over at Colossians chapter 1. Eventually I'll get through my introduction. Colossians chapter 1. Paul makes the statement here in verse number 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will, number 1, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord on all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How am I going to do that? Strengthened with all might, according to my power. No. According to His glorious power. Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Say, what do I need? I need to be strengthened by the power of a holy God who has all power. He wants to give you all might. He wants to literally put into you all of his power. But God can't do that when you and I are in the way. So the question comes, how do I get the power of God in my life to be able to fulfill what God asked us to do as far as the Great Commission goes? How do I get the power of God in me so that I can utilize that power for His glory day in and day out? There are some qualifications that you must meet in order to get Him to do that. And we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at how to have the power of God to fulfill the Great Commission. Let's have a word of prayer and I'm going to try to go rather quickly through these. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the morning, and we thank you for your goodness, your mercies, your compassions. Father, I'm glad we woke up this morning to your new mercies, because, Father, we need them. Lord, I do pray you would bless our time this morning. Be with me as I preach. Give me wisdom and clarity of thought and mind that I'd be able to say what you want me to say, nothing more and nothing less. That the Word of God would be magnified and Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up. And, Lord, I do pray that you would. Just bless us today. Be with Pastor Legault as he's probably getting ready to preach here soon in the next probably hour or so that your hand would be upon him. Lord, you give him wisdom as he preaches as well. Lord, once again, we pray you'd come back soon to take us home. Father, if someone here is lost without the Lord Jesus Christ today, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, once again, we love you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You realize that if you want the power of God in your life, you must get it God's way. God, God has, he has to decide he's going to give it to you. And so the questions come, well, how do I do that? Well, let's look back at 2 Timothy. Let's look over at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I have been, uh, I want you to know, I've been praying on this message since about the end of January for this day right here. That's how long I've been thinking about this. And so this, this is why I'm like, I've got to get a lot in here right now. There's a lot. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, know this. Verse number 19, he says this, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of, and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The first thing you need to do is you need to get cleaned up. Why is God going to work in a dirty vessel? Why is the holy God of the universe going to reach down and go ahead and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I know you're dirty, but I'll, I'll go ahead and use you. Now, I know we're all earthen, messed up, broken, cracked damaged vessels but that is no excuse to stay dirty he gives you the means to purge your life of sin god came and he saved you and he wants to use you and he wants to help you and he wants to strengthen you but you make choices day in and day out and you can either be clean and try to live right and try to do right and try to follow after righteousness you can follow after those things or you can live like everybody else and you know what you'll be you'll be just like everybody else with no power from god you and I walk into a restaurant, we sit down at the table, you reach over and you pick up your glass that they filled with water and you look at the rim of the glass and it's got like that little something. You pick up your fork and there's some salad, you know, leavens left on there, a piece of lettuce, just, you know, Right? And of course, the first thing you do is go, oh, that looks good. I'm going to put that in my mouth. Suck that right off of there. It's going to be great. No, your answer is, this is dirty. Somebody clean this. Hey, can I get a new fork? Can I get a new glass? Can I get... You know what you do? You show up with your dirty fork, and you look at God and go, here, use me. And God goes, you're gross. How about we clean you up first? And we say, well, you can clean up over there, but I like this right here. And you don't want to get clean. Well, why don't I have the power of God in my life? Because you don't want to get clean. Why aren't we accomplishing a goal across the world to evangelize an entire world? I'll tell you why. Because Christians don't live clean. They don't want the power of God to make it happen. You know what they want? They want what they want. 
They live the way they want to live. They let sin fester. They let it build up. They let it keep growing. They let it keep living in there. And you know what they don't do? They don't run over to 1 John chapter 1 and go, hey, God, I need your forgiveness. They don't run to Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. They don't say, hey, purge me with hyssop and make me clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Instead, their answer is, I want to keep what I've got and I'll make things as good as I want to make them. As long as I can stay good enough so that I don't feel too terrible when I walk in the doors of the church. The problem is God is not looking for you to be good. He's looking for you to be clean. He's not looking for, well, good enough. We can pass this test from everybody else. He's not looking to find out, hey, am I living better than 90% of the people in the room? He's not looking around saying, hey, am I better than 95%? Am I better than 99%? Am I the best person walking around in here? God's not looking for that. You say, what's he looking for? Clean. He wants you clean. You want to be clean? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. God, use me. I want to be filled. I want to do something. Are you willing to be clean? If not, why would God use you? Why would He give you His power? Why would He fill you up and let you go ahead and do something? You know, one of the scariest portions about being, about being a preacher and getting to walk up behind the pulpit, everybody goes, oh, it's great. I mean, you get to stand up in front of everybody and There's a weight that goes along with that. You realize you expect some things of me in my life. Naturally, and you should. You expect that I shouldn't get away with certain things. Live in certain ways. Saying certain things. There's certain things you just don't say. There's certain things you just don't do. I have a question. You and I both agree on this. Uh, the pastor is no better than anybody else in the room, right? He's given a job that's different than everybody else in the room, but he's not, he's not better. So the question comes, why do you expect me to be clean when I show up here and you don't expect you to be clean when you show up here? See, you expect me to get up here, right? Be clean, be ready, be prepared, be prayed up, be ready to go. Why is it the people coming to church not clean, not prepared, not ready to go? They do it all the time. Well, I don't have to be ready. I mean, pastor, he's going to come. I was just preaching a revival meeting uh, twice, back to back, right? We went to New Hampshire, took a, got back here for about a week and a half, and then we left again and went up to Nova Scotia. You know what I said at both meetings? I said I did not pack revival in my suitcase. I can't do that. I can't bring revival. It doesn't work that way. Say, what does? The willingness of God's people to be clean so that he can have the availability to work in their lives. It's your choice whether you want to be clean. I can't make you clean. God's not going to make you get it right. Nobody's going to be able to go up to you and tell you how terrible you are and make you come down here and get things fixed. It's on you. I don't know about you, if I went to a restaurant and about three times that waitress handed me a nasty, dirty fork, I'd be a little frustrated. And God keeps looking around in his silverware drawer at us and goes, boy, can I find somebody clean so I can use them? 
be nice if I could find somebody who's willing to get clean so I can just give them my power so they can do what I asked them to do. You got to get clean. You got to get clean. Why don't I? Because you don't want to. Why doesn't somebody get saved? Because they don't want to. Why doesn't the Christian live right? Because they don't want to. Why don't you give out the gospel the way you're supposed to? Because you don't have the power of God. Why don't you have the power of God? Because you're not cleansed. You're living wicked. You're doing all the sin that you know you you shouldn't be doing. You're lying and stealing and cheating and doing all the things you shouldn't do. You realize, I'm going to get here. Look over at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. You don't want to be clean, and the reason we don't want to get clean is this. We've lost a passion. We've lost an excitement. You remember the, the time you got saved, and you look back, and you had no idea what you were doing. No idea. I mean, even growing up in church, we still didn't know what we were doing, right? You get saved, everything's new, and you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Seven years old, you still don't know what you're doing. That was me. Right? And you're trying to figure it out, but you're just excited to figure it out. You're excited to go ahead and just, how can I, how can I figure this out? Some of you got saved later in life, and you know what you thought? Man, I got to catch up. I'm behind, and you're excited to run and get ahead and try and figure out what you can figure out, try to catch up to all those people like me that grew up in church, and yet you wanted to learn everything you could, and you wanted to figure everything out, and you wanted to get close to them, and you had no idea what it was like to be close to the living God of the universe, and all of a sudden, He's right there with you all the time, and He wants to help you, and He wants to work with you, and He wants to do all those things, and you get to Philippians chapter 3, and He says in verse number 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You know what you used to have? You used to have a passion to get to know And now it's mundane. It's normal that you can pray. It's normal that you can read. It's normal to hear a message. It's normal for God to answer your prayer. It's normal for Him to meet your need. It's normal. And the miraculous becomes the mundane all the time. And you go, well, I know enough. I know enough. Could you imagine if I got up and said, well, we know enough. Let's stop right here. It will be like you're fired. That's what you do. <laughs> what do you mean we know enough? How do you know an infinite God? How about you? You open the pages of a Bible again and you know what you find? Something new. And you read it over and over and over again and there's something new. I'm going to preach something tonight I have never seen before. If the Lord lets me preach it, I'm preaching something tonight. I have never seen it that way before, and it is amazing to me. Lord helping me, I'm going to do that tonight. You know what is amazing? That book is amazing, 
as it tells you all about him. And you've lost the wonder of him. You realize, if the apostle, did the Apostle Paul have the power of God on him? I mean, he wrote over half your New Testament. I'd be willing to bet the Apostle Paul had the power of God in his life. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe I'm really, you know, jumping to conclusions here, but I'm leaning toward yeah. And you know what his, his statement is? I mean, he's right near the end of his ministry at Philippi. He's writing to them from prison, right? And here he is. You know what he says? He says, you know what I'm still hoping for? I'm hoping that I may know him. <laughs> you know what I want? I want the power of his resurrection. You're like, Paul, you met him on the road. <laughs> he shined a light and knocked you down. He introduced himself personally to you. <laughs> Wait, you want to know him more? You're the one writing all about it. You went ahead and went off in, in the backside of the desert and got all the revelation that you got of the church and everything else. What do you mean that you might know him? He goes, there's always something more to find out about him. There's always, you think you've got all the power of God in your hands and here's Paul and he goes, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. You realize the resurrection is the showing off of God, the power of God? That is what he proves is the power of God. The proof of the power of God is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and when he rose again, he rose up of his own power. There was nobody else helping him. There wasn't somebody standing there going, Jesus, come forth like he did for Lazarus. There wasn't somebody who got tossed down into a grave and, uh, you know, down into that hole and touched Elijah's, Elisha's bones and came back to life again. There was none of that. Jesus just goes, okay, it's time to get up. And I'm walking out. <laughs> The power of the resurrection is all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. You know what Paul's going? I could use some more power. Why would God give you any of his power if you don't care about him? And getting to know his will. And getting to know his way. And getting to know what he would do with it. You know what is amazing? When you know what somebody else wants. I was Pastor Legault's associate for 10 years, a little bit over 10 years. You know what we got to the spot of? I knew how he wanted things done. I knew what he wanted. I knew how he wanted it almost every time. You know what I could do invariably? I could do what he wanted done the way he wanted it done. Some of you husbands, some of you wives, you know what your spouse wants and how they want certain things. And you do it that way to please them, Right? Are we getting this? There's the Lord, and you know what he wants? He wants some things done. You can give somebody the authority to do, the power to do those things. Last few years of Pastor Legault being the senior pastor, he was handing me more and more things. I had more power, more authority on that side of taking care of scheduling and taking care of this and taking care of that. It was given from someone who had more authority and more power than me. It was given to me to take care of some things. So I was trying to do my best, but my interests were always supposed to be his interests. It wasn't I get to do it whatever way I want to. It is I got to do it the way that he would want me to do it. Well, the only way to do that is to get to know what he wants. And we've lost a passion for getting to know him. We run on, I know what to do, so I will just do it. I just heard I was talking to a friend of mine. And he said he heard a preacher uh, just recently. 
And he goes, the guy's a good man. I don't know what he was thinking. But he goes, talking about major decisions. He's preaching a message, talking about major decisions in your life. And he says this. He goes, I don't need to pray about it. God's in me, and so I must know automatically what I should do, and so I don't need to pray about it. I just make a choice and do, and the Lord takes care of it. And I'm like, whew. That's the scariest, dumbest preacher that I know. That is dangerous. Now, there's some things, right, in your life. Should I read my Bible today? Yeah, right? Like those kind of decisions, yeah, you know what you're supposed to do. You don't have to consult God. Like, do I need to, do I need to, you know, give anybody a gospel track today? Do I need to, you know, there's dumb things, right? Those are dumb things. But boy, if you're talking about, well, what way is my ministry going to go as a pastor? How do I want, what am I going to give to faith promise? You know, what are we going to do about this situation? How am I going to get this done? And what do I need to do here? And should my family move or should we stay? Or what job should I take? Or all these things. All these things start You say, what do you do? You start praying. You want to know, hey, God, what do you want me to do? Seeking his face, trying to find him, trying to go, hey, God, I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with this? Help me out. Could you imagine living your life like a lost man going, well, I just make the best decision I know. Talk about a failure. You're going to mess some things up real bad if you don't consult him. No passion to know what he wants. I hope you've got a passion to know what he wants. By the way, the number one thing he wants is for you to be clean. And because you don't want to be clean, you don't care about what he wants. Look over at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. You say, I don't know if I really want the power of God if this is the way to get it. That's the problem. We, we don't really want it. So you're saying we an awful lot. Yeah, I'm in the pile too. That's who we are. You say, what is that? That's all flesh is grass. We just we struggle with the idea of what do I really want? You know where I'm going. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants us. He wants to do what He's asked of us. He wants us to accomplish the goal. He wants us to go ahead and go forward. And He says, you know what you need to do? You're going to have to surrender. You're going to have to surrender what you want to what He wants. You're going to have to give up what your dreams and your ambitions and your goals and your thoughts and your... It's all got to go. Paul said it in the, last, in the last passage we read there in Philippians. He said that all those things I counted but loss, I counted them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know what it takes? It takes giving up on some things. Surrendering. It takes going, you know what? My life is not my own. Because here's the deal. If God is going to use you, why would he put it in somebody not yielded to his will? 
Why would God give you all of that power and all of his might and strengthen you and then you get to go off and do whatever it is you want to do? Could you imagine if you had the power of God and you're pulling into Walmart parking lot and somebody cuts you off and takes your parking space? My goodness, that car is exploding right there in front of you. You're like, boom, fireball, ha, take that. Right, that's the power of God. Can't God call down fire from heaven? That's what he does. Can't God destroy anybody? He can. Then he looks over at the disciples and he says, yeah, but you know not what spirit you're of. Because that's not what I want to do. You and I, we'd be calling down fire and brimstone all day long. Could you imagine having an off day, right? You're just, everything's making you grumpy. Nobody survives. Right? Because that's the power of God. You'd be like, wipe them out. Those aren't his goals. That's not what he's looking for. Say, what's he looking for? He's looking for somebody yielded to him to accomplish the goal that he's put in front of him. Why would he give you his power if you're not going to accomplish the goal he wants you to have? That's not a good mixture. If we are all just self-ambitious and are self-driven and our own goals and our own mentalities, why would God give his power to you to execute your will? So what's he want? Surrender. Well, that means that I'm not in control. <laughs> Absolutely. You realize in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul goes ahead and says, hey, you know, uh, take this thorn in the flesh, take it from me. And he beseeches the Lord thrice. And the Lord says, well, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, I need you to surrender on this one. I, I need you to surrender and just understand my grace is sufficient for thee. Why? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Well, how do I get the power of God? Submit to him. Know, know that you're weak and he's the one who's strong. So then he says, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. He glories in his distresses. He glories in the troubles and the trials and the afflictions that he takes. He says, why? That the power of God may power of Christ may rest upon me. I'll take glory if that's the will of God. I'll take glory in it. I'll take glory. If that's what he wants, I'll glory in it. Why? Because I know the power of Christ is resting upon me. So that doesn't sound very easy. It's not. Not in our flesh. That's not easy. Instead, you know what we do? We look around and go, those infirmities and those reproaches and those distresses and those afflictions and those trials, I don't like them. And God says, yeah, but the trial of your faith, trust me, is much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Say, is the power of God worth it? Paul seemed to think so. He seemed to think it was all right. Say, well, I don't, I don't know if I really want the power of God. I know. And that's why we're still failing. Look over at John chapter 16. 
John chapter 16. So how do I have the power? How do I get the power of God? Well, number one, you better get clean. Number two, you better renew your passion. Number three, you better surrender to His will over yours. Number four, this is a this is an amazing concept right here. John chapter sixteen. Look at verse twenty-four. Hitherto you have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Have you ever asked for it? Say, that sounds selfish. Aren't most of your prayers selfish? Say, that sounds awful. Think about it for a minute. Think about, right? What do we pray for for people? Lord, I pray that you'd heal them. I pray you'd save them. I pray you'd fix it. (laughs) Whatever it is, just fix it. Say, isn't that selfish prayers? That's, there's a selfishness to those prayers. That's not a bad thing. We want God to do those things. We normally, hopefully, right, we end with your will be done. Whatever, Lord, I don't know how you're going to work that out. Your will is done. We know you got it. When he doesn't heal and he doesn't fix and he doesn't take care of, our answer is, God, you know best. Praise the Lord. That's right. That's the way we ought to. But our original prayer is pretty selfish. Lord, fix this the way I want it fixed. Right? I'm not trying to be mean. That's not, that's, that's everybody. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? We make supplications and prayers and we reach to him and we ask for him to do things because he's God and we're not, (laughs) right? Willing to resign to the fact that he may not do it our way, but that we still want him to work and to help. And so we do that, but we oftentimes come from our selfish perspective of, I want this fixed my way. Lord, can't you just do it this way? It'd be great. So our prayer life is pretty selfish. Overall, normally pretty selfish, even when it's about others. It's still kind of selfish because we want it a certain way, our way. Why is it that you don't ever ask God for his power? When's the last time you said, God, I need you to fill me up. I need your power. I need your strength. I need you. We don't ask that because we oftentimes don't even think about it. We don't think we need it. And you have not, James chapter 4, because you ask not. Now you can go to the second half of that and we can talk about that passion and all the things we've just talked about. You ask and you have not because you ask and amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. But boy, could you look at a world and go, God we got a whole world of lost folks. There's 8 billion people out there. Most of whom do not know Jesus Christ. Many of whom have never even heard of him or really what he has done for them. God, would you give me your power to let me know what I ought to do? And give me the power to do what I can do? Because the command is for you to go. You can go by prayer. You can go by putting something in the offering to give to somebody else to go. But you also have a pair of feet. 
And there's plenty of people around you that also don't know. Lord, give me power. Give me courage. Give me strength. You have not because you ask not. We don't ask for his power. You know why we don't ask? It's the same reason we don't pray therefore the Lord of the harvest. Because you're worried about all the other things that go along with it. You're worried that if you do pray for it, he's going to go, you need to clean this up. And you don't want to clean that up. He's going to put his finger on something and go, hey, uh, you know, uh, you need to fix that right there. Or he's going to say, hey, I need you to sacrifice something for me so that you can go and do what I asked you to do. And we don't want to give up anything. Or he's going to put his finger on something else and he's going to say, hey, you know what I need you to do? I need you to fall in love with me. I need you to read more. I need you to study more. I need you to find out what I would want. Well, yeah, but that's going to take time. And so we don't ask. And so we don't receive. Look over at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Verse number 27. Luke 18 and verse 27. And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. We have an impossible task. Go reach 8 billion people on the planet. Go reach them, tell them about Jesus Christ, give them the gospel. Impossible. Yeah, but the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. I have a question for you. I'm on the, I'm on the new diet, right? I'm almost done with my first 90 days. Feeling great. I love it. And uh, used to be, though, that you'd drive up to a drive-thru. And back when I was a kid, you know, even into my 20s, you could still pull up to McDonald's and say two wonderful words. Supersize. And who does not love a supersize fry from McDonald's? You say, oh, I don't really. Get over yourself. You know you do, all right? And so, right, we go, we're Americans, okay? Let's just be honest. We're Americans. You know what we like? Everything as big as we can get it. Right? If we can get it big, I'll take that one. Is there a bigger than that one? Because if there is, I will take that. Uh, Right? That's normally what we do. They started making phones smaller right up until they figured out we don't really want them smaller, so they made them even bigger, right? (laughs) We want, we want what we want, and normally we want it as big as we can get it. Parents, if you could ask God for anything for your kids, no matter how ridiculous, what would it be? What would it be? There you go. You say, hey, what am I going to do? What could God possibly do in my life? Would you ask him to God-size it? 
You say, that's impossible. The things that are impossible with men. You're going to the only person in the universe that can do the impossible. Yeah, but... The impossible comes with the power of God. What could it be for your family? What could it be for your church? What could it be for you and your kids? What could it be for your job? What could it be for you in this life if you'd ask God to do the impossible? By the way, you're sitting in a building of the impossible. Say, what does God do? The impossible. He makes walls fall down with people just marching in circles. (laughs) He makes the Red Sea part because some guy sticks a rod over the top of it. He makes the Jordan part when somebody smacks it with a mantle. He raises the dead and makes them whole again. He goes ahead and takes care of the greatest diseases on the planet by speaking a word only. And you and I walk up and we go, that's just too hard. I don't know if I could give that. I don't know if I could have that. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know. And God says, how about you ask? How about you ask me? We could do something amazing. Yeah, but nobody's asking. God, could you do this? I know he can do exceeding abundantly above anything you ask or think. But we don't ask. We don't think. So we don't get to do it. Because the power of God doesn't show up. And it's not because he doesn't want to give it. He wants to give it. We just don't want to receive it. In 1925, January, there was an epidemic that spread up in Nome, Alaska. Diphtheria had come in. The temperatures were around negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Snow over the tops of the telephone poles and all communication for the telegraph is pretty much covered. And nobody, nobody can get them help. The trains can't move. There's too much snow. The aircraft that they had is water-cooled. That's frozen. Dismantled for the winter so that it doesn't destroy it. The entire city of Nome was going to die. They called for world prayer. The Queen of England announced world uh, prayer across the nation of the United Kingdom. America was praying. The amazing thing was 1,000 miles away, In Anchorage was the antidote. 
1,000 miles. That's it. Just 1,000 miles. But they couldn't figure out how to get 1,000 miles and get them the antidote. That doesn't seem like much, except it's insurmountable. How do you get that there? A man by the name of Gunnar Kaysen and Charlie Olson were sled mushers. And they said, hey, you know what? Why don't we try this? Why don't we run our teams back to back and we'll station ourselves out 25 to 50 miles apart. And we can run and we'll just go as far as we can and we'll hand it off to the next guy and he'll run it as far as he can. We'll run it off to the next guy and he'll take it as far as he can. And we'll just keep handing off that serum until it gets all the way up to Nome, Alaska. They said, man, that's crazy. Charlie Olson says, yeah, but if people are praying. Gunnar Kaysen says, I think we could do it if people are praying. And so they load up. And it starts out of Anchorage. The temperature barely ever comes over negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Let's just say that's cold. These guys are running sled dogs 25 to 50 miles at a time. And they would pull in, and the next guy would go, and the next guy would go. And they're about 75 miles from Anchorage, or from, uh, I'm sorry, from Nome. And the guy comes in, and it's Charlie Olson. And he pulls in, and his friend Gunnar Kaysen is there. And he says, Gunnar, we got to quit, man. It's too dark. I can't see anything. The snow's blowing so hard you can't see three feet in front of you. I don't know if the dogs even know where they're going. And on top of that, Gunner, your lead sled dog is injured, and you got this rookie. There's no way you should go. You can't do it. Gunner says, yeah, but people are praying. And it's my turn. He loads up, and Charlie Olson's pleading with him. Not to go. And Gunner says, I got to go. It's my leg. Charlie Olson wrote, Gunner Kaysen is the bravest man I've ever known. And as his friend got on that back of that sled and he said, Hut, pull. He watched his friend go off into the snow, into the darkness, figuring he would never see his friend again. Thirty-five miles later, Gunnar Kaysen is pulling into the next stop. He's flipped his sled twice. Both hands are getting frostbite. 
his dogs are starting to freeze up. And he starts unhooking his dogs and getting them to start to bed down. And he goes in and he finds out the guy who's supposed to take his place isn't ready. He was still sleeping. And he goes, man, in order to get the dogs awake and get them fed and get everything ready and get loaded up, and it's going to take this guy hours. So he walks back outside. And he hooks his dogs right back up. He says, we're not done. That's crazy. You're done. Did your part. Gunnar Kaysen steps on that slide and he says, Hut! And off they go. The last 40 miles. Gunnar Kaysen pulls into Nome, Alaska six days after they had left Anchorage. And as he pulls in, he's dragging a dog. His hands are frozen to his sled. He can't move. They pry him off to try and heat him up. He gets into town and he they take that serum and literally saves the entire city of Nome, Alaska. His lead dog was Balto. That was his rookie. And everybody knows Balto. They put a statue up of him in Central Park. They pried Gunnar Kaysen off and they said, Later, they were interviewing him and said, Gunner, why did you do that? You could have died. You could have lost everything. He said this. Well, two things. Number one, I had the serum. And everybody was going to die if I didn't try. And number two, my grandkids were in Nome. And they were going to die. You know, it's amazing to me that someone could not want the power of God because they don't understand what it's about to cost them. If you had the power of God, what could you accomplish? You realize the world is dying. Over 17,000 since you arrived at church today most of whom never got the fix for the greatest sickness in their lives. They never got the fix of Jesus Christ washing them of their sins to give them heaven for all of eternity. And what bothers me about it is that it doesn't bother me much. Because that's how cold we are. 
We are colder than a negative 40 degree Iditarod. And so we don't want the power of God. But could you imagine? Could you imagine if a few would say, I want it? I want it. I've got friends and I've got family and I know a world that needs a savior. And without the power of God, they will not see him. They will never know him. And they will spend eternity in a lake of fire because I was unwilling to get out of the way, get cleaned up, surrender my life, fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and get a passion for him and keep that passion going and just ask him to help me, ask him to give me his power, ask him to give me his strength and God size it. But because I'm too selfish, there are some that haven't heard. And there are some that never will. I don't know about you, but I desperately need the power of God. Let's go ahead and stand. So Brother Andrew comes. You know we're going to sing and and do all that. Maybe you just need to come and say, God, I've never asked you for power. But boy, I need it. Maybe you go, I know where I'm missing because that's why I don't have the power of God. Just come down here and get it fixed. You don't have to stay the way that you are. You can come and you can say, God, I need your power. I need your strength. I need you here. God, I'm sorry I'm not clean. I'm sorry I don't love you the way I love you. I'm sorry that I haven't surrendered and I need to give up right there. I'm sorry I haven't been asking, but I'm asking now. God, could you do the impossible for me? If you're in here this morning and you're lost without Jesus Christ, you don't know the day that he saved you. He wants to clean you and save you and with the power of God, wash it all away and give you eternal life. If you'd be willing to come, we'd open a Bible and show you how you can know your sins are forgiven forever. The power of God to wash you forever. Father, I do pray you would. Bless the invitation now. Thank you, Lord, for just being so, so merciful and so good. Amen.